Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. All right, folks, here we are. We're back with the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, and uh, this time we are moving on to something completely different from the Enneagram Type 6 that we talked about last time. I'm Mario Sakura. I'm here with TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia. TJ Ingracia, you're going to tell us uh, what movies we're going to talk about today. Sure. Today we're going to talk about Beverly Hills Cop from 1984 with Eddie Murphy, when Eddie Murphy was still funny, in my opinion, and uh, 2015's Trainwreck with Amy Schumer. Both great seven fun examples. Yeah. I really, I, I've seen Beverly Hills Cop, and I don't know how many times I saw it in the theater when it came out, uh, but this was my first time watching Trainwreck, and I loved it. I just loved this movie. Had you guys seen both of these before? I'd seen Beverly Hills Cop a number of times over the years, and I saw Trainwreck when it came out in the theaters and hadn't seen it since, so I forgot a lot of the details. There's a lot in it, and it was just a joy to watch again, as was Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. TJ Ingracia? I had seen Trainwreck, never seen Beverly Hills Cop to my Get out of here. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm woefully uh, uh, short on the Eddie Murphy canon, uh, uh-huh. but it was great. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. And we'll come back to that when we talk about Beverly Hills Cop, the uh, the Eddie Murphy phenomenon, uh, because uh, it was significant. So uh, we, we want to touch on that. I will also say that with Trainwreck, I watched the unrated version. Did you guys watch the unrated version? As well? I did on accident. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay, good. I just so, clicked on the first one that came up, and it turns out it was the unrated right. one. Uh, same, same here. And so uh, so I'm happy about that. I, I don't know. Uh, it would be interesting to go back and watch the other one to see what didn't make it. I can imagine quite a few things that might have been left out of the unrated version or of the rated version. So uh, uh, a cutting-edge sort of movie for sure okay um all right great so um uh, let, let's talk about uh, type seven in general before we get into this and we've been doing this with each each of these episodes sort of setting up the type giving a relatively brief overview of it and enneagram type seven is what we call striving to feel excited now this gets called the optimist it gets called the enthusiast by certain people but again i like to go for what sort of a affective tone they're striving for and with the seven it's really about this ongoing need for stimulation okay now in our book awareness to action we didn't call it striving to feel stimulated uh, because there are certain connotations to that. There you go. TJ is holding up awareness to action, the Enneagram emotional intelligence and change um, in, on the camera, which, by the way, we are currently going through in my other podcast, the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. So folks can listen to that as well. Shameless plug. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Insert here. Holding up a Coke can. Um, so uh, um, uh where was I? So, yeah. Uh, so, uh, honestly, you know, if you say somebody's striving to be, uh, striving to feel stimulated, you get a little bit of tittering in the background, right? So, we uh, go with striving to feel excited. Interestingly enough, we had to switch it in the Spanish version because the implications are the opposite there. Striving to feel excited 
brings titters in Spanish. So uh, we've changed it there. So um, basically what this means is I want to feel some buzz. I need some distraction. I need something to get the adrenaline going. Now this does not mean that all sevens are adrenaline junkies. They jump out of airplanes, all that sort of stuff. In fact, most of the ones that I know don't do those things, but they're always looking for something new, something fresh. They're inside their heads, planning, plotting, scheming, figuring out what will bring something of interest their way. They can get bored easily, and boredom is the, um, actually, I should be careful with that, because usually when I ask sevens, how do you feel about boredom? They'll say, well, I've never been bored a day in my life, or they'll say, oh, I don't give myself the opportunity to get bored, or I hate being bored. It's because they're looking for stimulation, okay, again, so I'm not just going to sit here and wait for something to happen. Let me go to the neglected strategy first, which is at point five, striving to feel detached. This is something they struggle with. It's not that sevens are talking all the time and engaged all the time and doing something exciting all the time. In fact, sevens often have this very private side of themselves that likes to be left alone. Because being excited all the time, making people happy, making yourself happy is tiring. So people just want a relief from that. And so sevens have this kind of secret world where they go into their lair and they hibernate without really letting anybody know. And people always think that sevens leave the party early because they're going to, an, you know, they're going to another party. Sometimes that's the case, but very often they really just want to go home because they're tired of being on all the time. Okay. So now, so what does that mean about striving to feel detached being the neglected strategy? Sevens indulge themselves. They go after things. They chase their impulses when they should step back and think about things and ask, should I do this? And again, we see this in both of these movies. Okay, These are both characters that have challenges with impulse control, shall we say, right? especially the Amy Schumer character. So they have a hard time letting go. And I always tease my seven friends by using the example of some tribe I read about that would hunt monkeys by putting a f piece of fruit in a jar so that when they put their hand in the jar, they could you know, grab the fruit, but they couldn't get their hand out by holding the fruit. And the fruit would be tied, I mean, sorry, the jar would be tied down. And then the, the hunter would just come along and whack the monkey in the head, and then they'd cook it and eat it. So it's that not being able to let go of this thing that I really want that gets the seven in trouble. Now, the other connecting point is at point one, striving to feel perfect. And this is the support strategy. And this is a tendency toward criticism, a tendency toward perfectionism that we see in sevens when they're not happy and when they're not getting what they want. Okay? We see this again, especially with the Amy um, character in Trainwreck. She gets kind of nasty and kind of one-ish when she's upset, right? So there's this criticism that comes out. But the other piece of this is that ones, I'm sorry, sevens tend to like to have order in their world so they're not distracted from the fun that they're having, okay? If I do the things that are expected of me, if I'm the good boy or girl, people leave me alone to go do what I want. Okay? Now, when we start looking at the uh, core qualities of the seven. We have joy, 
0.7, intuition, 0.5, and objectivity. All of these become stunted in the seven. They don't feel inner joy, which is, um, which is contentment independent of outside stimulation. So they have to go looking for it, right? They try to replace this inner contentment with external stimulation. They don't necessarily trust their inner knowing. They just jump from thing to thing and then have anxiety about whether they're doing the right thing. And they can struggle with objectivity, losing their objectivity in this desire to go out and idealize their circumstances. Finally, the classic Enneagram, we have gluttony as the vice. I want it all. I go to the buffet and I want everything. I want to try and put it all on my plate. And this is how they can you know, approach life. The fixation is planning, right? always thinking in their head of what's next, what's next, what's next, and failing to appreciate very often what they're experiencing. We always think that sevens, you know, this, this narrative of the seven, about sevens, is that, um, oh, they're happy all the time, they're having fun all the time. The reality is they're often frustrated most of the time because what they're experiencing in the moment is not as exciting or fulfilling as they thought it would be. And finally, we have the virtue of the seven, which is sobriety, which is taking only what one needs out of life. Now, I got to tell you, as I was doing a little bit of research about uh, sobriety as a virtue, I had a hard time seeing it as a virtue. I got to admit, that's a bias on my part, right? This idea of only taking what you need out of life seems to me a little unaspirational, um, but... I get the point, right? And so what I always talk to sevens about is learning to enjoy the experience, learning to be satisfied with what is happening. Okay, uh, doesn't mean that you can't have fun in life. Doesn't mean that you can't do more and seek more interesting and stimulating things. It's just that we shouldn't be doing it to the extent to the uh, to the cause of our own suffering. Okay, so that's uh, that's the type seven in a really big nutshell. Uh, guys, what would you add about sevens that I didn't cover? It's a word that I think if you've used, just to continue the last point you made there, savoring. Savoring is a really helpful uh, practice for sevens. It's not so much denying myself things that might make me happy. It's really being with the enjoyment from any given thing that I do have. Because it's so easy just to run through it quickly and say, yeah, yeah, I got it. What's next? What's next? Wanting to feed that emptiness inside, as opposed to let's really be with how unbelievably delicious this orange is. And I know it's just an orange. It's just a regular orange. But if you can give it your full attention, it can bliss you the fuck out. Just eat a single segment of a really good orange. And that can apply to any single aspect of life. Yeah. One of the things that you hear people talk about with the seven is that it's not they have all these experiences, but actually the juice for them is in like looking forward to the experience. And that's why there's this disappointment that comes in because it's not as good as what they built up in their minds. And so it's like, oh, the next thing will be better. And then when they get there, they got to keep climbing this mountain. And so just focusing on, no, let's enjoy this experience now. And that's a good, you know, I'd have to think through what the implications for each type is, but I know as a one, and maybe it's having a connection to seven, that's something that I struggle with as well thinking about the next thing, what's next, what's next. But for me, it's more about, I want to control what's going to happen next. And so <laughs> putting my focus on that more than just the experience, but 
it's valuable for everyone. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Uh, TJ Dahl, what you were saying there made me think back to a corporate training I did years ago. This is over 20 years ago, and probably almost 25 years ago. But anyway, so I'm doing this um, introduction to the Enneagram for a corporate group, and the general manager of the business segment was a seven. He was a transmitting seven. Great guy, but very much a seven. I mean, just the stereotype all over the place, outgoing sales guy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And during the break, they bring out snacks, like they do with these things, right? So, that, you know, it's at some country club and they bring out, uh, first they bring out this tray of uh, pastries. Okay? And the guy kind of pushes his way to the front of, you know, the, the group, you know, finds himself at the front as they put the table, as they put the tray down. And he says, oh, brownies. And he reaches down and he grabs a brownie and he puts it up to his mouth and he takes a bite. And as he's doing that, they bring in this tray of soft pretzels. And with a mouthful of brownie and one bite taken out of the brownie, he says, oh, soft pretzels. And just let's go of the brownie so that it drops right back onto the tray of other pastries <laughs> and starts reaching for the pretzels. Yeah? And, and, and everybody just stood there because we had just talked about the seven and everybody just stood there laughing at how, you know, you know how uh, stereotypical this was and how, uh, you know, it fit with this description. Now, did he recognize that? He did afterward. Yeah. I mean, after everybody was laughing at him, right. he said, why are you laughing? And he said, dude, you just dropped a brownie with a big bite out of it back on the tray, you know? So, um, but uh, a very vivid example. All right. <laughs> okay. That's a true story. I'll, I'll, I'll just never, ever forget that. At least I think it's a true story. Uh, so we're going to get into our first movie now. Uh, and our first movie is Beverly Hills Cop uh, with Eddie Murphy from, uh, when was this? 1984? Yeah. Now, again, this is a movie I remember uh, seeing in the theater. And this was a huge huge movie and this was kind of the um i would say the crest of the eddie murphy phenomenon that had started earlier with saturday night live and frankly at that time in the i don't know when he started probably 1980 ish 81 ish on saturday night live 80 yeah and he was really the only reason to watch the show but he was a reason to watch the show because he was a comedic genius this guy was just so so talented and then he came out with a movie 48 hours that again i remember very vividly seeing in the uh, theater and i'll tell you the main reason i went to see it is because it was a walter hill movie the director rather than it was an eddie murphy slash nick nolte movie because eddie murphy yeah everybody knew who he was but you know uh uh, but for me it was not like oh gosh i gotta go see this eddie murphy movie no great movie dated right certainly you know problematic um you know uh um with political politically incorrect issues but you know it was it was of the era then after that came trading places another great movie um also a little bit problematic and then beverly hills cop and at this point he was just flying this guy was the king at this period as a very successful movie so tj Dahl, you're going to tell us a little bit about beverly hills cop 
Yeah, and just something to mention about its success and what a phenomenon it was. It was the number one box office movie of 1984, and that's a movie that in, that's a year of movies that included Ghostbusters and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and the Karate Kid and like many many big hit movies. And this outdid them all. So this was a movie that was directed by Martin Brest. It tells the story of Axel Foley, played by Eddie Murphy, who's a street smart Detroit cop with a penchant for ignoring the rules and going undercover without authorization. He's visited by his old friend, Mike, who just got out of prison and has been working in LA for the boss of their mutual friend, Jenny, who runs an art gallery there. And while he and Axel are hanging out, he gets murdered. So even though Foley's superior at the police station tells him to stay away from the investigation, he heads to Beverly Hills in his beat up car and immediately starts investigating Mike's murder. He's got a cool synthesizer theme that plays almost constantly as he investigates. And he soon comes to the attention of the Beverly Hills Police Department, who assigned two cops to keep an eye on him. He uncovers a drug smuggling scheme, and the story comes to a head with a huge shootout and the death of most of the bad guys. And eventually, the Beverly Hills Police acknowledge that Foley was right all along, and then lovingly send him back to Detroit. Eddie Murphy is a Detroit cop. Hey! On vacation in Beverly Hills. I just got off the phone with an Inspector Todd in Detroit. He says if you're out here investigating the Tandino murder, you needn't bother coming back. I don't want to take it anymore. For a man who claims to be on vacation, you look a lot like you're on a stakeout. Stakeout? No, no. I'm picnicking. This is like a picnic area. I'm going to ask you some questions about Michael Tandino. Again, I'll shoot you myself. Eddie Murphy, Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> so, TJ and Gracia, since this was your first time watching Beverly Hills Cop, tell us your impressions. Uh, it was just a lot of fun. I mean, Eddie Murphy's laugh is so iconic. It's all, it almost feels fake. Like, you think, is this guy doing, is this a bit or something? But it's just, and I think that speaks to sort of, certainly in this film, just sort of the exuberance of the seven. Like, it's just so naturally comes out of him. And one of the things that was really interesting about the film was that there's all these moments where, I guess the best way to say it is that he, the character has such a uh, a genuine goodwill for all of the people around him. You know, he says and does things. He plays these pranks on the cops and he kind of needles them, but he really genuinely wants to be friends with them. He wants to to solve the case with them. And he says and does things that a lot of times, if it was from another character, you might think it would be come, come across as sarcastic or something he's doing to try to undermine them. But he genuinely just wants to be friends with everyone. And uh, just, it it was, it was refreshing in some way, like to just, he's such, has such goodwill. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Great. Uh, a couple of things I'll, I'll come back to on that, but uh, TJ Dahl, what for you, what was seven ish about this movie? Well, for one thing, excitement and fun, just to build on what TJ and Gracias said, for the signature laugh, which was iconic back in the day. Everybody knew it, people imitated it. And as I was watching it, it's like, it's, it's an air horn of joy. Like it really feels genuine. And something that I've experienced with Sevens that I know is that Sevens love spreading joy. What could be better than everyone feeling good together? So there's a number of scenes where like early on in the movie, he's reunited with his old friend, Mike, and they immediately just start laughing and hanging out and they go out and they play pool and he's just having a great time. And you, there's just the sense that that's what he goes through life doing. 
before that scene happened, the movie opens with a great big truck chase scene where this huge semi-truck is just smashing through downtown Detroit, being chased by any number of cop cars. It was kind of like the iconic chase at the conclusion of the Blues Brothers, just in how over the top it was. And as I was watching it, for one thing, a Pointer Sisters song is playing, the Neutron Dance, so it's really up. Which I still can't get out of my head uh, since watching it. It's tormenting me for the last few days, but, yeah, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. It was a huge hit in its day. I remember it well. The lyrics have nothing to do with what's happening in the scene. It's, <laughs> it's basically just, I'm having fun because I'm dancing. Yeah. So there this truck is just smashing cop cars, smashing parked cars, smashing a truck with a bed full of wa watermelons that then explode all over the street. A bus does a 180. It really reminded me of a little kid playing with toys. <laughs> there was no sense of like anybody's going to be injured or, you know, they're in poor neighborhoods in Detroit. So like somebody's already poor life is going to be just decimated even further because their car was smashed. Like <laughs> These things are just flying like toys and yet it's real. And here we are watching it with the comfort of knowing it's just make believe. This is Hollywood. Those are all stunt performers. Those were all scrap cars. No one was hurt. There's nothing to be sad about. This is just fun. It's just pure escapist fun. Yeah, yeah you know, it's a, a great point. A lot of the movie unfolds like that. Yeah, a great point because it really did feel like a little kid playing with cars and just smashing them up and laughing and having fun. That, that's, a great, that's a great description of that, TJ. All right, good. So what else? Go, go, go a little further. Tell us more about the movie and what was Seven-ish. A central element of the character of Axel Foley which Eddie Murphy said is the closest of any character he has ever played to himself. There's a great book about the comedy movies of the 80s that I read and just loved called Wild and Crazy Guys, How the Comedy Mavericks of the 80s Changed Hollywood Forever by Nick DeSemlian. Awesome book. Can't recommend it highly enough. So he talks about Eddie Murphy quite a bit in that book. So he says, Axel Foley talks like him, walks like him, and reacts to situations like him. One of the central features of this character is his defiance of authority. Or not even defiance of authority the way a six might of like having this antagonistic relationship with authority. It's almost just like- Indifference, indifference to authority. Yeah, yeah. it's like, well, why the hell should I play by the rules? Which reminded me of something that I believe is written in the Wisdom of the Enneagram that sevens tend to see authority as arbitrary and don't feel the need to respect it. So the big chase that happens at the beginning of the movie, we find out pretty soon after he was going undercover without authority from anyone. This wasn't part of some elaborate sting. This was just him acting unilaterally. And the trailer truck full of contraband cigarettes was taken from an impound of another sting. And he just took it. And if, if you go into the logic of that, of like, how did he get that truck? How did he sign it out with no warrant, with no, with no nothing? Maybe the way he did later in the movie, just by faking, you know, just playing a character and playing people. But anyway, that's a big part of who he is, even in Detroit where it's just a given that we're street smart and we don't always play by the rules. Then he goes to Beverly Hills where their signature as a department, and they say this quite often, is we play by the rules here. You have to follow the rules. And of course, he does anything but. And still saves the day. He's absolutely right every time, which is great for a comedy, not so great for real life. If you had, you could make a movie about a cop who, who broke every single rule and it wouldn't be a hilarious comedy if you wanted to. But in this case, it is. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think this movie was almost like a sevens fantasy, right? If there were no rules, if I could get away with not following the rules. Because in my experience of sevens, yes, they they disregard authority 
at the same time, they're pleasers and they want to be seen as a good boy or girl. Okay, this is a really interesting dichotomy in the seven that they, they want people to like them. They want people to think well of them because they have figured out that if you think well of me, I can get away with doing what I want. Okay, so they'll clean their room. They'll be an altar boy, right? They'll do their homework because if I've done my homework, now mom and dad let me do whatever, right? You know, they figure out what it is that they need to do to make people happy. Now, we don't see so much of that in these characters, but the sevens in real life that I know and that I work with, this is kind of how it works. But it's not because I'm afraid of authority or I need to follow the rules that I make people happy. It's because I really want to do what I want because I think what they want doesn't mean anything to me, but this is the way to be able to do what I want. Okay, So I agree that they disregard authority in that way, but they seem very often to be following the rules in other ways. And to add to that, he does befriend the two cops that are assigned to kind of keep yes. tabs on him. He's his pranks towards them are pretty friendly and funny, you know, right. like he has dinner sent out to their car when they're staking out his hotel. He stuffs bananas up their tailpipe, which is humiliating, but not destructive. And he, he, he defends them to their Lieutenant coming up with his elaborate story of them being super cops. And eventually he does get them on his side. So I think that's another part of it too, which is like, these rules are constraints. They're arbitrary. I don't need to follow them. You know what? If you come along with me, I got the right idea. We're going to have a great time together. And in this case, we're going to get the bad guy. And he succeeds. Yes. It's kind of that Tom Sawyer thing, right? Of enticing people in by, you know, height. Uh, this is so much fun to paint this fence, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. That it brings people in. Although with, you know, with these characters or this character, really, is, this is fun, right? We're really going to have some fun here. So great stuff. TJ and Gracia made a good point about goodwill and good intention. And this is something I've noticed with all the sevens I've known and worked with is they genuinely lack malice toward people, right? They're just, they're just not haters. They just want to look for the good in people. They want good things to happen for other people. They don't see the world as a zero-sum game where your gain is my loss. It's just, let's all be happy here. And I want people to be happy. You know, my, my wife and two of my sons are sevens. And they're just, they just don't have a nasty bone in their body, right? I, I, I feel for them. I, I just, I, you know, I just don't know how they get through life. But, they're, you know, but, you know, and. You more than make up for it, I'm sure. Exactly. Yeah, I got them all, right? So, uh, so but my, um, my youngest son is a transmitting seven, which I would suggest that both of these characters are in, in, in these movies. And, you know, he's 14 years old and just knows everybody, you know, through sports and everybody loves him and he likes everybody. And he just, you know, he never has anything bad to say about anybody. And, you know, after the games, he goes and he talks to the referees and the umpires and, you know, chats with them and the other team and, the you know, just... You can't not like this kid. And I think certainly you can't not like Axel Foley as well. All right. So what else, guys? What else about Beverly Hills Cop struck you as seven-ish? Another big one for me was just how much improvisation was in it. Now, there's two levels to that, which is the improvisation that happened on the set, because supposedly this movie had gone through so many drafts, and it was originally supposed to star Sylvester Stallone. So the script wasn't 
you know, ironclad when they were filming and Eddie Murphy could just improv his way between any holes in the script. And that was part of his genius anyway. Yes. So why not capitalize on that? And supposedly many, many, many takes were ruined by the cast and crew laughing right. audibly. And they would just have to cut and start again. So that happened a lot, but that's also what the character is doing. Yeah. So he's improvising this investigation. You know, he just kind of goes here and then goes there. And there's no sense of this is part of some premeditated plan. He's just figuring it out as he goes. And he's infiltrating different places with impossible ease. And then whenever he's in a situation where he has to fake somebody out, you can see this moment where he just looks at the person, assesses them, puts on a character, <laughs> starts playing something, which is exactly like something an actor would do in an improv scene on stage. And I would venture to say that there is a disproportionately high number of sevens in the world of improv comedy for exactly that. It's like, give me a prompt. Now I'm a new character in a new scene, playing a new objective, go. And they do it. And that's what he does again and again and again. And it really builds on his experience in SNL as well of playing characters. Right. So who am I in this case? I'm a righteously indignant writer for Rolling Stone, or I'm a male <laughs> sex worker, or I'm, you know, fill in the blank. I'm this radically different character than I was two seconds ago, and I believe it, and I can play it with a straight face to the nth degree, and you will love me for it, and I'll get what I want. Great. Um, TJ Ingras here. What, what else about this movie? You were talking about the Beverly Hills police system that seems very, you know, we do things by the rules. Lieutenant Bogomil seemed like a pretty type one kind of character. Yeah. And, but I did like how in the end he comes around, you know, they, they sort of get on his side, they go to the compound, they take out all of the vaguely Eastern European <laughs> 1980s style bad guys. Who couldn't shoot <laughs> to save their lives, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, <laughs> it's like the uh, stormtroopers in Star Wars. And, and just open fire on the cops. Like, yeah, that's going to end well. Yeah. But then, so then, you know, they take out all the bad guys, but then the big chief shows up at the end and the Lieutenant spins the story sort of in a, in a good way to get everybody out of trouble, out of character from what he's doing through the rest of the film. And that's felt like a good moment where that's a good seven influence on a one like hey it's okay to break the rules it's actually this is the right thing to do and it's okay to to stretch yourself a little bit so that was fun and then a nice addition to that is he makes sure axel leaves town yeah, right, right. Like, <laughs> this is not going to be a permanent arrangement we will escort you to the edge of town thank you right. goodbye it's been fun but you know, this is last call. Bars closed. You know, you don't have to go home, but you do have to leave here, right? So uh, I get it. Um, yeah, great. So a couple of things I'll point out. I, I, I really noticed that the um, um, the music was very, very sevenish. It was that '80s seven comedy movie you know, high energy pop. So there was Neutron Dance, and I, I should have my notes, but was, was The Heat Is On in this movie? The Heat Is On, And yeah. that wasn't that Kenny Loggins? That, uh, who no, was? that was Glenn Fry. Oh, that's right, that's right. Okay, great, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so so as, as, as soon as I heard that music, I'm like, yeah, this is both Seven and the 80s, right? That, mu that music was just so typical of the 80s uh, at that point. Um, let's see, what else? Um, the improv, you're absolutely right. You, there were moments where you could tell that the actors were responding to him out of surprise and their laughter was genuine. They almost sort of broke character a couple of times. You know, I think even Ronnie Cox at one point actually 
you know, there was a, a chuckle out of him that didn't seem like it was scripted, but um, that was uh, throughout the movie. Let's see what else in here that I have in my notes. Um, Bronson Pinchot. Okay, that small part as Serge, the assistant at the art gallery, that was huge at the time. I mean, everybody was doing an imitation of that character, and that ended up getting him a TV series um, where he played a character, Perfect Strangers, right, where he played Balky. That was kind of a an, a, another character, you know, uh, that he was playing with a, with a heavy accent. And I honestly think that the Martin Short character in father of the bride was a bit inspired by by sarah i i think i so i'm not going to accuse him of stealing that character but it was pretty darn close so that was great oh and have to shout out to um jonathan banks who plays the heavy in 48 hours uh, uh i'm sorry well he was he was played the cop and he played a cop in 48 hours but played the heavy in beverly hills cop and went on to be um uh frank ermintrout was it frank ermintrout was the character's first mike, mike thank you mike, yeah, mike ermintrout in uh breaking bad and uh, uh better call saul and he's i think he is an actor is one of those eights like we were talking about about michael madsen where just the power just exudes from him. Yes. Yes. Just resting power, just always there. Yes. Agreed. And I would be very surprised if I were to see him in a role where he wasn't playing an eight. I completely agreed. Completely agreed. Especially in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. He's just such a um, such a force in in those shows. That wonderful guy. Wonderful actor. Yeah, just all in all, super fun. And again, to the to the joy of this character, there's that scene where he's you know walking on the street and he sees the two guys in kind of the Michael Jackson leather outfits and actually something very similar to what Eddie Murphy wore in his uh, delirious and raw uh, uh, comedy movies. You know, he's, but he's just he's just laughing. He's not he's not laughing down he's just amazed at the people he's seeing right it's not there's not a meanness in his laughing about what he was seeing i felt it was just look at this look how fascinating this is okay um that i, I just thought just was remarkably joyful as well i saw the character more as a navigating seven than a transmitting ah, seven so i wanted to hear okay. you interesting parse. let me just list out the things that suggested navigating to me, although it didn't seem like a open and shut case, is that he does do a fair bit of listening in the scenes where he's hanging out with his friend, Mike. He's not holding court being the brilliant Eddie Murphy stand-up comedian, which of course he could have if they had wanted him to. There's actually a lot of give and take. And his genius throughout the movie is playing people, like figuring people out, spotting their vulnerabilities and exploiting them and coming up with a character or a, a motivation for that character, as well as through the system itself, whether it's the Detroit police system or Beverly Hills society or the Beverly Hills system. Like, and he's, he's remark he's noticing how do they do things here? They've got all these computers and these cars, the cleanest cop cars I've ever been in and pointing that out as well as eventually bringing on Taggart and Rosewood as his allies in this thing. So those seemed kind of navigating to me. I'm curious to hear yeah. your take on it. Uh, and actually, I'll stand corrected because I think you make a really good point there. And I uh, didn't think that through uh, as well as I should have. And I, I think probably because I see Eddie Murphy himself 
as a transmitter, uh, or at least you know what I've observed in him, I was probably just layering that on to the character. But I think you're right because there was no um, um, there was no artifice to him. There was no attention seeking uh, in in that way, or you know, not a huge amount. So yeah, no, I I think you make a great point, and I'll I'll change my stance on that. One other thing I wanted to mention about the movie is just this is entertainment with little to no relation to reality. Like I just found it inadvertently hilarious. I don't know if it was received like this when it came out. And I definitely want to hear about what it was like to watch this in the movie theater. Um, but if, if it was as hilarious then as it is to me now to imagine that police work is even remotely like it's portrayed in the movie, <laughs> like the truck chase scene, like that would happen at all, like all of the shooting and killing with nobody getting PTSD. You know, Victor Maitland and his goons opening fire on the cops with machine guns. So much gunfire. Eddie Murphy gets grazed in the shoulder eventually yeah. by one shot. <laughs> and you know what? Who cares if it's not realistic? It's so much fun. It's pure, wonderful escapism. It's make-believe. Like we said, it's kids playing with toys. And it carries over, I think, some healthy elements of childhood that many of us lose touch with. And that sevens often, not always, but often still hold on to, which is the importance of joy, of pure, unadulterated joy, how cleansing that is, how cathartic that can feel, the just the healthiness of imaginative play and of playing with others. Most of us shed those things as we leave childhoods, and sevens can keep those sparks alive. And that can be a real gift that they can give to the people in their lives and the world in general. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one -on -one consulting on creative projects of all kinds as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. Okay, let's go on a train wreck. Something again, well, no, not completely different. Another comedy. Um, this, I think, is the reality of the seven. Right. This movie, I was really impressed at how this captured the uh, the struggles of a seven and re the real portrayal of the internal landscape of the seven. So even though it's a bit more sobering uh, in that sense, a funny, funny movie. I was shocked at how funny this movie was when I watched it because this was the first time I had seen it. And I just laughed. I, I you know, I... I've been a big John Cena fan as an actor for a while, but man, oh man, that guy is just courageous, right? I mean, just what a courageous, courageous actor. I mean, just every, every scene he had, I just kept thinking, oh man, that's a guy, that, that, that guy's got balls. Uh, yeah, that, that guy's got balls, you know? I, you know? I could not see Arnold Schwarzenegger playing that character. I could not see The Rock playing that character, right? John Cena, kudos to you, pal. The, just super, super stuff. Um, so, uh, 
<laughs> right. So, so let's go on. Who's going to tell us about uh, Trainwreck? TJ and Grazia. Yes. All right. Trainwreck is the 2015 comedy uh, directed by Judd Apatow and written and starring Amy Schumer. The movie revolves around Amy Townsend, played by Schumer, a young woman who believes in a carefree lifestyle without commitment or emotional attachments. Amy works as a writer for a sleazy men's magazine and lives her life in a series of one-night stands, avoiding serious relationships altogether, and influenced by her father's advice that monogamy isn't realistic. <laughs> Everything changes when Amy's assigned to write an article about a sports doctor named Aaron Connors, played by Bill Hader. As Amy spends time with Aaron, she starts to develop feelings for him, which goes against her usual behavior. However, her fear of commitment and past experiences make it difficult for her to fully embrace a serious relationship. While Amy tries to navigate her budding romance with Aaron, she also faces professional challenges and complications in her relationships with her sister and her father. Her transformation involves confronting her fears and insecurities, learning to open up emotionally, and reevaluating her perspectives on love and commitment. Girls, your mother and I are getting divorced. Monogamy isn't realistic. Monogamy isn't realistic. Again. Monogamy isn't realistic. I didn't understand that word at the time, but now I know exactly what he was talking about. Saturday, I would love it if you were my date. I can't do that because, like, you and I won't ever see each other again. I'm giving you an assignment. I need a profile on a sports doctor. So you're doing the article on me? Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt. We watching Downton Abbey later? LeBron, I'm being interviewed. Listen, I'm watching it tonight because I'm not going to go to practice and all the guys are talking about it and I'm left out. Tall. Oh my God, he's calling me. Why would he call? You guys just had sex. This is Amy. I think you butt dialed me. No, I dialed you with my fingers. What's she saying? What's she saying? Shh. He called me on purpose. Hang up. He's obviously like sick or something. I was calling to say I had a really good time last night. I was wondering if you wanted to um, hang out again. I'm going to call the police. You mentioned the father, and I, and I laughed. I thought Colin Quinn was just wonderful in this. And when the father dies two-thirds of the way through the movie, I was so sad, not because the father died, but because we were not going to get any more Colin Quinn in, in the movie. So just wonderful. And that scene with him explaining monogamy and the doll, uh, it was just priceless, priceless. I just loved it. All right. Yeah, a lot of really great bit, smaller parts from a lot of great comedians and uh, just a lot of, it's like, oh, that guy. And, you know, one line here or there. I love David Tell as the homeless guy that Amy interacts yeah. with a lot. Uh, just a lot of that kind of stuff throughout the film. Yeah, great. Um, TJ Daw, what was Sevenish about this movie for you? Well, a really big theme in it is seeking pleasure to escape pain. So the first scene is Amy is a little girl finding out her parents are getting divorced. That's a traumatic incident for a kid. And that leads to her becoming a commitment phobe and seeking pleasure through sleeping with a lot of guys, a lot of one night stands, avoiding entanglement, rejecting even disdaining love. And then even, you know, in her relationship with John Cena, who's her sort of boyfriend at the beginning of the movie, even when they're fighting in the movie theater, she goes off and smokes a joint and comes back for more popcorn. Or later in the movie, when her relationship with Bill Hader is hitting a crisis point, you know, he's receiving this big award for his humanitarian work. She leaves to take a work call, but then she stays out and smokes a joint. And he comes and he confronts her for it, rightly, in that she just doesn't want to be in a situation with pain happening. It's like, give me something now to make me feel better. And in the breakup scene with the John Cena character, as they're sitting there on the stoop, she literally says, hey, can I leave? 
or can you leave? Yeah. I'm very high, and I just need this interaction to be over. <laughs> After he pours his heart out to her about the family that he wants and his dreams. Yeah, with two sons and two more sons. <laughs> so, so she's also, she's cynical. You know, she uses her humor to make really stinging, cynical jokes. And her father's got MS, you know. So aside from the fact that, you know, she comes from a divorced family, her father's ongoing illness is not easy. And then he dies and she makes this heartfelt and funny speech at the funeral. But she seems to think that she's gotten through her grief in an inhumanly short amount of time to get over the grief of a parent's death. So it leads to chaos in her relationship. And then when it looks like things might be ending with her partner, she goes off to the bar and gets drunk and dances with her coworkers and then takes on the intern and sleeps with them. So there's this there's this pursuit of pleasure. Or sort of, yeah. <laughs> tries to sleep with Tries her to sleep. <laughs> before his mother interrupts. <laughs> but frequently there is this sense of like, like just running away from that anxiety, running away from pain, from trauma, from anything I don't want to feel. Let's if I can if I can smoke that joint, I'll feel better. If I can have sex with that person, I'll feel better. Yeah. And what was interesting to me about this marriage, first of all, it was, it was again, all pitch perfect, pitch perfect seven stuff, all these things about uh, seeking pleasure to avoid pain that you mentioned. The other thing it really got right is insecurity about their ability to achieve things in life, right? When a seven, you know, sevens have these huge fears of failing and disappointing people. A lot of times when sevens don't finish things, it's not because they got bored and wanted to move on, but they're afraid they're going to fail at it. And if I fail, you're not going to like me. You're not going to be happy with me. You're not going to see me as this fun, lovable, interesting person. So it's easier just not to finish it and go off and do something else. And kind of, it's it's almost like, you know, distract, distracting attention from the mess over here by doing something fun and shiny over here to get the other person's attention. So I thought it was brilliant at the way that it captured that. And part of that is is the arc of her character includes submitting her article about Aaron to Vanity Fair. You know, her own editor rejects it eventually, but acknowledges that it's good. And she's kind of spinning her wheels at this sleazy men's magazine being given assignments that are ridiculous that she doesn't really care about or want to write. And yet here's something she genuinely does care about. So to be able to stand behind this thing and say, I'm, this goes with my heart. I care about this. This means something to me. And I'm going to submit it and take the risk of submitting it and being rejected, but it gets accepted. And it's, that shows a big growth arc for the, her as a character, as well as her choosing to commit to the um, Bill Hader character romantically. Yeah, one of the interesting things uh, you write in the Enneagram guidebook for Seven, one of the derailers is always wanting more. And what was an interesting contrast is this idea of, that does sound like a very Seven-ish thing. Like, you know, they want the next big shiny object. You know, if one is good, then 27 of something is better. But, you know, so she's she's cycling through all these guys. Obviously, she's going for uh, quantity, not quality. But it seems like, it's obviously intentional in that it's almost like she's wanting more with the intention of having less in a way. Like because she's afraid of commitment, she's afraid maybe I can't hack it in a real relationship. And so I think at one point maybe it's her sister says to her, You're you've always dated dummies you weren't at risk of actually liking. So it's like 
uh, if I don't try, then I can't fail because the failure might be too painful or whatever. So maybe you can talk about that that contrast between wanting more, but actually it's a way to avoid getting what would be the the real more that you might yeah. want. So here's here's what I think happens with sevens. And again, in the Enneagram literature, we often read about our Enneagram type being something that is a solution to something we're afraid of. And maybe, but I also think there's an element of just uh, programmed positive orientation, meaning I, I want to be excited just for its own sake, right? Because it's good. And yes, I want to avoid pain. So there's sort of a chicken in the egg sort of thing, right? I'm, I don't believe that they're striving to feel excited only because they want to avoid pain. I think everybody wants to avoid pain. Sevens are wired to strive to feel excited. And yeah, they, you know, they don't want to deal with unhappiness. And this is their way of doing that. So what ends up happening is because their style of avoiding pain is through distraction, it's through jumping to something else. They often don't sit with things long enough to become skillful at them, such as dealing with difficult relationships, right? Arguments, okay? The scenes when she was arguing with Bill Hader and her first reaction was, okay, I'm going to go now. And he says, what do you mean you're going to go? And she says, look, we're having an argument. We're going to spend some time apart from each other and then we'll get over it and we'll get back together. That was that I don't have the skills to talk through what I'm angry about. So I just flee from it. Now, when the seven early in life is learning to deal with things by just running away from them, they never develop those skills to deal with those issues. And then they roll into something called skilled incompetence. There was uh, a uh, management theorist, uh, Chris Argerus, who talked about skilled incompetence, where we look for these workarounds in areas of our incompetence. Okay, so somebody, for example, who doesn't learn to read, or somebody, yeah, so somebody who's dyslexic, right, and can't really read. And I've seen this in a number of business leaders. They don't want people to know that they struggle to read. So they come up with workarounds. They say, oh, I just hate to read. Or, you know, they'll find ways to get other people to summarize things for them and that sort of thing. And so they keep running away from that thing that they don't know how to handle. And it increases the pain and the shame they feel in that area. So what happens with sevens is because of their way of dealing with things, the pain is always kind of right behind them somewhere. Okay. And so they're just bouncing and moving and bouncing and moving to stay away from it because of the incompetence they feel at dealing with those things. I, I was having a conversation with a seven uh, recently, and I said, I invoked the myth of Sisyphus about you know pushing the rock up the hill, Camus' essay on the myth of Sisyphus and how happiness or contentment comes from realizing that life is meaningless suffering okay and when we can embrace that and accept it then we can find true contentment and happiness right there must have been a four <laughs> yeah probably right uh, so, uh, but he, he makes a point you know in that you know life is one problem to solve after another and when we realize that then we can have fun but when we think life is supposed to be fun all the time all we are is disappointed okay it's never enough one thing I want to say is a lot like Beverly Hills Cop, this movie was divorced from reality, yeah. at least in terms of the grand gesture 
finale at the end where she joins the cheerleaders <laughs> and does this perfectly choreographed. First of all, that she got them all to do that with her in yeah. the first place and got yeah. access to the stadium after everyone left. Yeah. Yeah. And then how long did she practice that with them? 15 <laughs> minutes? It looked like she just ran to the stadium, well, ran backstage, huddled with them and says, I'd like to do this, then figured yeah. it out, and then got the trampoline out and the acrobatic slam dunk guys to join it and the music playing on the system. And you know what? Who cares? Who cares if it's not realistic? Right. It's great. Right. It's so much right. fun. It's hugely entertaining. It's also a nod to just the conventions of rom-coms that often include some unrealistic grand gesture and a lot like you know i quoted mindy kaling in a previous episode about how rom-coms are as similar to reality as star wars is to nasa exploration like it's fantasy it's fun it's nourishment for the soul and why not we all need that or the fact that this doctor is best friend was with lebron, LeBron. James, <laughs> who actually you know in, in terms of athletes in movies i didn't think he was half bad he he, he played a pretty good part I thought he, I thought that character was wonderful. I, I just thought that was such a good piece of the movie. So what type did you see LeBron kind of playing? Obviously, I have no expectation that what he played bears any relation to who he actually is. Right. Uh, so I think LeBron in real life is probably an eight. Um, a whole lot of two going on in this movie, I thought. He, he struck me as kind of a two. Yeah, like he, he seemed to be playing... Like the girly best friend in a teen rom-com right. movie. <laughs> the Rosie O'Donnell He's, character, right? right? He was the Rosie O'Donnell character in this, yeah. Getting all giddy and excited when, you know, he finds out his best friend might have a girlfriend and wanting to know how it goes. But including the scene where he very deadpan is saying to Amy, what are your intentions? <laughs> Do you hear his name I, yeah. when you listen to the wind? Do you see his face when you look at the clouds? <laughs> just that, do not fuck with my friend do not break his heart yeah. he will have me to yeah. answer to yeah I have to ask you a question do not hurt him just <laughs> 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 a great line and my, and my other favorite so another shout out to Tilda Swinton I mean I would have never in a million years identified her as that character and um so there was that and and the other great the other great line was well she looks like an idiot and then that was it <laughs> <laughs> and you're just waiting for this but and it just never comes brilliant brilliant funny stuff something that struck me as i was watching the movie was how much the movie seemed informed by sketch comedy you know and amy schumer has a very successful sketch comedy show that was her real rise to fame and she'd been successful as a stand-up comedian before that and that got her a comedy central show inside amy schumer and then some of those sketches went viral and there's many scenes in this movie that you could imagine being pitched at a writer's room of a sketch show like imagine a huge tough guy keeps making inadvertently homoerotic threats or what if LeBron James, Matthew Broderick, Chris Everett stage an intervention on someone and Marv Albert shows up and does play-by-play -play on the intervention? Or the Dirty Secrets game at the baby shower? Yeah. Or the writer's pitch meeting for a Maxim-type magazine? Like, each thing was like something out of a sketch writer's pen. And you could say something similar about Beverly Hills Cop. Like, the story... I'd seen Beverly Hills Cop maybe four or five years ago. When I watched it this time, I had no memory of the plot. None, other than nominally that Streetwise Detroit cop goes to L.A. and there's a big shootout at the end. But I didn't remember that his friend got murdered. I didn't remember any of that. Or, you know, who did it and why. 
I didn't care because the plot is pretty flimsy and forgettable. It's a clothesline for Eddie Murphy to show up and be absolutely brilliant. It's a bunch of short, unbelievably funny sketches, basically. And he also came out of the world of sketch comedy with SNL, and that's where Bill Hader came from, too. Yeah, I thought Bill Hader worked really well as sort of the straight man, more or less, in the film. I mean, he's very funny, but it's it's fun to see him as just sort of a regular guy. Okay, so, um, yeah, we talked about LeBron James. Um, I, I thought just, the, yeah, the... Um, they're at the, the, the baby shower and talking to this other couple that had the uh, foster child that they had no, the child that they adopted from overseas who had was probably wearing a size 13 shoe. <laughs> he was supposed to be eight years old. <laughs> I, I just thought these things that don't have to be there, right? I mean, just, you know, are not part of the plot. To your point about sketch comedy, it was, I think it brilliantly tied together a real story, right? Uh, you know, kind of a, a, a plot narrative, but just had so much fun along the way with all these little different diversions and uh, thrown in situations, thrown in sketches, just fantastic stuff. And comedies are almost always an hour and a half or even less. So to have a lot of these in, things in inflated the running time to about two hours, and I'm glad they did. Yeah, I agree. There, there wasn't much that going back on, uh, I would have cut out uh, of things that I didn't think worked. I, I think pretty much everything worked. The The scene where she sleeps with the um, the intern or tries to sleep with the intern, I, I, I could have done without that just because it was so freaking creepy, you know, but... <laughs> but it's a good scene of the nadir of a seven who's trying yes. to escape pain. Yes. It's like, that does not look like a... a pleasurable experience at all. That's really grasping at like, maybe, maybe I can squeeze some joy out of this. And the answer is no. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see, what else did I have here in my notes? Uh, obviously very, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but predictably perhaps, very popular with a female audience. Again, this movie did really, really well. Um, let me see if I can find the details. So made for $35 million and uh, grossed over 140 million, which is pretty successful. Okay, uh, a big hit for Judd Apatow. You could see the Judd Apatow sensibility all over this, but I think did he do super bad? Did Judd Apatow do super bad? Does anybody know? I believe he produced it. Produced it. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I I think that this was probably and it was probably Amy Schumer's influence. This was really really edgy, even for Judd Apatow whose movies are generally a bit more harmless. You know, they kind of get up to that edge with kind of frat boy sort of humor. But this one had more of an edge to it um, that I, I, I really thought worked. And I thought she brought that to it. All right, great. Well, I highly recommend Trainwreck. And again, I had not seen this movie. I wasn't avoiding it necessarily. I just, you know, just never you know got around to seeing it it's one of those movies uh, you know in 2014-15 I was traveling a lot and uh, not going to as many movies had young kids and it just never got onto my radar but boy oh boy really worth the two hours uh, invested I think again a little raw don't have the kids in the room when you're watching it especially the unrated version uh, you know um, there were a couple of scenes that were like yeah this deserved you know to be uh, uh not for all audiences, uh, we'll say, but fun, fun stuff. 
Okay. Final thoughts. Uh, tell us more about sevens in movies, TJ. Well, just to build on something I said, uh, comedies in general is very much the territory of the sevens. Certainly, people of all types make comedies and starring comedies, and many of them are excellent. But that is the territory, much like we were talking about, that ebullient joy of watching something and just how cathartic that is. And in particular, comedies where the story isn't always that important. So I could also say that about a lot of Peter Sellers movies, where it's just like a lot of independent gags that are strung together with a plot that does make sense, but the plot's not as important. Same with Mel Brooks. I'm quite certain Mel Brooks is a preserving six, but his movies, to me, feel very seven-ish. Uh, Marx Brothers movies. I actually recommend watching documentaries about the Marx Brothers than their own movies, because the movies themselves don't hold up. There's these flimsy plots. There's a love story with ballads that just aren't interesting. But if you watch the Marx Brothers in a nutshell or the unknown Marx Brothers, it's just a highlight reel. And you can see their incandescent brilliance in scene after scene after scene. Uh, Monty Python movies, I would include in that too. You know, usually there's a story and it's barely there. It's just a, literally a bunch of sketches together. And practically any movie starring Robin Williams. He almost always played sevens and did them so unbelievably well. I would also say um, action movies are often very seven-ish. And I'm talking the fun kind of action movies, but that also depends on what a person considers fun. Some people love cartoonishly gory stuff. For example, Quentin Tarantino, who I'd be very shocked if he wasn't a transmitting seven. And when every single one of his movies, you can feel the joy for every single element of cinema just bursting out of every single frame. Action adventure, Spielberg movies, often have a really sevenish quality to them. Action comedy, like Beverly Hills Cop. And Jackie Chan, I think, is a seven and a master of sevenish action comedy. And part of the joy of watching his movies is that we all know that he does his own stunts, and we're going to see the outtakes in the credits. So all of his movies kind of function as the continuing adventures of Jackie Chan. And he's kind of winking at the camera, a lot like Eddie Murphy did. There was a moment when Eddie Murphy turns to the camera after foiling the robbers of the strip club and gives a big okay symbol and a huge smile. It's basically like he's breaking the fourth wall, like he's Bugs Bunny, who I think is probably another seven. I think um, Warner Brothers cartoons have a tremendously seven-ish quality to them, much more than Disney cartoons. Sketch and improv shows, very seven-ish. YouTube and TikTok videos are very seven-ish. They're short, they're stimulating, they're addictive, and they're bottomless. Um, yeah, great stuff, TJ. Uh, absolutely, you mentioned uh, uh, some of the great sevens. Uh, we did an episode on Steven Spielberg. Was that last season or the season before? I don't remember now. Um, and his uh, the seven-ish influences on him. Robin Williams is probably the patron saint of movie sevens. Um, but just another tremendous, tremendous talent who also, at least in real life, you know, demonstrates that it's not all happiness, happiness and optimism in the life of the seven. But very often that seven-ish energy is covering fear, disappointment, frustration, sadness, etc. So they feel things just like we do, um, you know, even though they might not seem to very often. So all great stuff. TJ and Grassi, any final thoughts on these movies or Type 7? They're a lot of fun. Check them out. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. You will not be wasting your time if you watch either of these movies. If you're looking for some fun, I'm going to add, uh, I'm going to, since we're in a Eddie Murphy kind of mood, I'm going to 
Also highly recommend Trading Places. A bit more dated, a couple of scenes in there are like, mm, that doesn't play as well, hasn't aged so well. Uh, but fun stuff. Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd together are just incredible. So a uh, big fan of that movie too, and it would make a good addition to these two. All right, everybody, thank you. This has been fun, as we would expect when talking about Sevens, and uh, we will see you next time for something I'm sure that will be quite, quite different. So long. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media. 